I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. We've got another exciting one for you today. I'm talking to Dr. Daisy Dunn, who is a classicist and historian and author of In the Shadow of Vesuvius, A Life of Pliny, uh, Of Gods and Men, A Hundred Stories from Ancient Greece and Rome. But we are not talking ancient history because Daisy has got a really interesting new book out called Not Far From Brideshead, Oxford Between the Wars. We're basically going to be talking about Oxford University during this period and basically the kind of mini war that happens within Oxford and and the Oxford University as an institution in between the two world wars, which I was completely clueless about until this book landed uh, on my lap. And it's a fascinating read. Daisy, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm very well. Thanks for asking. Normally people don't care. Um, they just sort of go, yeah, I'm fine. Can we move on and get on with the interview? Um, which we are promptly going to do. But unusually for History Hack, normally we dump, jump sort of straight into the history. But I'm curious about this shift because, as I said in the intro, you're, you're a classicist um, in, in terms of your training. Your previous works have been on ancient history. So why... What made you want to sort of dive into this story that's, you know, almost 2000 years later um, and in in a very sort of different corner of the world? What was the thinking behind it? Well, this was a story that I actually happened upon completely by accident, I think. So, you know, as an author, the worst possible thing you can do is sort of finish a book and then be sitting at your desk thinking, oh God, I've got to write another book. What on earth do I write about next? And have that sort of agonising few weeks or months or whatever it is, just trying to come up with an idea. I think sometimes the best ideas come to you quite organically over time without you even realising it. And then suddenly they kind of click into place. And this is something that happened with this particular story. I went to a literary festival in North Yorkshire 
in 2016. giving a talk there and I thought, oh, when I'm up here, I'll go to Castle Howard because I hadn't been there before. And I, kind of, I knew of Castle Howard mainly through the televised series of Brighton Revisited, which I think I watched as a teenager and quite enjoyed. And but I, I hadn't anticipated of walking into the main hall and seeing quite so many works of art, of sort of classical arts, of emperor busts and sort of paintings inspired by Greek mythology and things like this. So I kind of went home and I was reading up on the kind of classical connections to Castle Howard. And I realized that Gilbert Murray, who was sort of the, the preeminent scholar in classics of the 20th century, he married into the family who lived in Castle Howard. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I kind of knew his name through sort of my student reading list. And I started reading more and more into, into him and his role at Oxford and his circle. And it just sort of struck me that he and all these other people kind of connected me to all these other poets and um, writers of the age. I hadn't really thought about from that perspective. So I thought it looked quite fun and quite sort of eccentric. And um, I mean, the fact is that one of the people I was writing about had served in the First World War and he's kind of profoundly affected by that. And a lot of these people were working quite hard in Oxford to try and aid refugees from Nazi Germany and the sort of the rise of Hitler sees classical history suddenly propelled into public consciousness because it's being subverted. So classics becomes a lot more central to the national conversation than you might think. So in a sense, the, the book wasn't so much of a departure uh, for me as, it's, as it appears on the surface. I'm going to just pull on one of those threads that you've just kind of teased us with there, which is poets, um, not least T.S. Eliot, because that's where you start your, your book, right, with his experiences at the start of World War I in Oxford. Um, and I think this is an important kind of scene setting for us to understand why the university undergoes this shift. Give us a sort of flavour of the way in which life changes within the university through the onset of the war, not just in terms of obviously the, the place kind of empties, right? Because lots of the undergrads go off to war, but you know, the way in which the tempo of life also changes within the university. Yes, um, yes, so poor T.S. Eliot comes over to Oxford, probably full of expectations of what it's going to be like. Uh, he arrives in 1914, and as you say, he finds it really emptying out as more and more students are going off to war. And lots of the sort of centuries-old traditions are having to change and adapt to the times because there aren't sort of the, the usual staff around for a start. So there's bigger gaps between meal times, which is sort of an irritation to some of the students, to say the least. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, the young men that T.S. Eliot befriends, this young man called E.R. Dodds, who became one of my protagonists in my book, he was his tutorial partner. They studied together. And he describes Oxford as being like a shrunken skeleton of a university at this time because the British students are you know, largely off away fighting. Um, those who are still remaining are kind of attending lectures in the morning and then having to go off and train in the afternoon with uh, the officer's training call. And so they're colloquially known as bug shooters because supposedly they spend all their afternoons lying around on their tummies sort of shooting at insects in Christchurch Meadow. That's sort of the, the joke that was made within the university and so doing musketry practice and things like this. And so the kind, of, the kind of makeup of the university changes uh, around them at the same, same time. You have students coming in from overseas, you have more Rhodes Scholars, more students from America, more students from Europe, more students from India arriving. And at the same time, because there are so sort of few 
people filling the colleges, rumours start to swell as the war goes on. So by 1917, certainly, um, rumours reach certain soldiers on the Western Front that Oxford might have to close because it's not going to be sustainable. And, and there's a really lovely letter that's been preserved uh, at Wadham College. And it's from a student saying, we, I hope there's no truth to this rumour because we'd think that it meant you were losing heart if Oxford was to close. So luckily it didn't close, but it did have to adapt and it did have to change, which was quite a shock for a traditional place like Oxford. I mean, just in terms of student life and student culture, you know, things like team sports. Um, I mean, yeah. think about what do we really associate in terms of sporting connections with Oxford is, and Cambridge, of course, is famously the boat race. But when you have this mass exodus of students, all of the clubs also must sort of wither and sort of go into at best hibernation, if, if not cease to exist completely. So do you see this sort of the student life kind of changing it? And how do the students themselves try and deal with that? Well, that some of them have to try and sort of take up sort of rowing on their own or in small boats rather than the usual eight. Um, and a lot of, so the other colleges are so filling up with people they haven't seen before. So there's a Belgian refugees, for example, arriving. There are Belgian school children being educated sort of within uh, Oxford as well. And uh, so the biggest change, I guess, which affects women more than men and I would say there are far fewer women in the university at this time than men but they're profoundly affected by the arrival of something called the third southern general hospital which arrives and takes over a lot of the university and arrives at examination schools for a start which is where students are used to doing their exams these are absolutely enormous halls and they're sort of perfect for wards so it was sort of a natural place to you know to, to take uh, the wounded in and the town hall likewise that specializes in treating soldiers who are suffering from malaria and Somerville which is one of the five women's colleges at this time that's based next door to the Oxford Radcliffe Infirmary. So they decide, the War Office just says, well, it's convenient, let's knock a wall through so that soldiers who've been treated can then kind of use that as a convalescence home. So that means that all the women students have to sort of move out and be rehoused. So that's a big change. And you have Robert Graves and Siegfried Sassoon and people all being treated there. And there's some wonderful photographs, um, sort of tents being erected on the lawns to try and maximise the space and sort of soldiers relaxing in the portico outside the library, trying to get some sun and kind of recuperate. And then there's a, a sign put up in the dining hall saying that officers are requested not to throw custard at the walls, <laughs> which is rather funny. So the place looks very different. The women have to go off to Oriel, which is a male college. They're put in their own little separate quad and there's kind of like a, a barricade uh, put between them and the sort of local journalists uh, compares them to being sort of bricked up like a, like medieval nuns and the men kind of try to break through into their quarter and it becomes sort of a bit of a challenge for them so the place does change quite dramatically. Wow um, you talk there a lot about sort of in a sense Oxford trying to do its bit during the conflict is there that sense very early on that the university has a, a role to play within the wider war effort or is this something that develops out of necessity with the passage of time? I think at the very beginning uh, of the war there's a lot of, sort of recruiting going on in Oxford. There's St Giles which is this long road which run, leads out from, from Oxford and there's a, a fairground there. There's been sort of a, a fair there every 
September and there's sort of a lot of recruiting happening there thousands of people sort of, you know all sign on so it's happening early on but so the hospital arrives sort of slightly later into the war uh, and I think there is a sort of real desire on the part of the people who are there you know, to, to do something to feel needed I very very Britain she's a great author of Testament of Youth wonderful wartime memoir she was one of the students at Somerville and she said even though she was studying there and she wanted to go to Oxford she felt like it was almost irrelevant in a way she felt like she needed to be doing something which is why she left to become a nurse she later went back to Oxford so I think there's a kind of an anxiety and I think we can we can really relate to that especially now you kind of want to, to do something to help you know even though you, you don't necessarily know the right way to do it. Let's let's take it forward a little bit in time to sort of the post-war period because as I teased at the start and as you know the focus of your your book really is um, Oxford kind of finds itself in a conflict in a different sense doesn't it? Um, in the the interwar period, as, as we now think of it, of course they don't know it as the, the interwar period. But you've got lots of factions, differing pressures, a move to bring about change, which in itself ends up being contested and a hell of a lot more besides. So let's start with the divide within the lecture theatre first of all, and this is the one that perhaps surprised me the most when I was reading your book, um, because you've got a, a division that you kind of really nicely illustrate in at the start of the, I think it's the second chapter between those who had served and those who hadn't talk us through that divide how it kind of looked and, and felt and the impact that that had within within the halls within the um the lecture theatres themselves well Oxford looked incredibly hierarchical after the war in a way that it hadn't before. It's a really sort of strange mix of people uh, across the year groups and uh, immediately after the war. If you, if you think about it, you have sort of schoolboys coming up straight from school, who obviously they've been sort of too young. They've come straight out of school, they're arriving in Oxford and sort of discovering independence for the first time. They're sitting next to former soldiers and officers who have been you know, deeply scarred in many cases by their experience um, they have their own vernacular they have their own language in which they describe things um, the the novelist Anthony Pohl describes them sort of describing the dining hall as mess and things like that you know they sort of have their sort of army uh, slang uh, which they bring to Oxford and then you have these students who've been up all the way through the sort of rare survivals from before the war who um, Morris Bower who's one of my classics dons I focus on he describes them as the brontosaurs there's the old dinosaurs who've been there from before and I mean this this kind of weird mix and combination of people who are often quite segregated within the dining halls they it's very very obvious to people who are there and Vera Britton who I've mentioned a few moments ago she sort of described the young men who were there sort of oscillating between this kind of profound inferiority complex in front of the officers who had fought and this kind of determination to make themselves felt by being so as noisy as possible so there is it's sort of heavy it has a dramatic effect i think this gulf between the men and the boys do you see sort of conflict and does it end up sort of spilling out into more than just sort of a an almost cultural divide do you sort of see you know people having a little bit too much to drink and those those divisions sort of spilling over into fights in the quads or, or equivalents like that Definitely so, yes. Um, I mean, one of the things we sort of associate with Oxford, unfortunately, today is the Bullingdon Club. 
and that was still very much you know around <laughs> in this period and you have these rather you know, privileged students joining this group and burning each other's furniture in in the in the college quads and sort of creating mischief and sort of handing over a check the next day you know as if that would make everything all right again and that's not necessarily um sort of being carried out on students who fought and against those who haven't but there's a kind of general atmosphere of of liberation and sometimes of going too far and i think we can look at that and we can be rightly so quite hard on Bullington Club type antics today but I think in the immediate aftermath of the war we kind of see them slightly differently you know we're looking at people who have been thrown into you know, from one extreme to another entering this kind of strange university after the trenches it must be a very very kind of destabilizing experience so I think I think the time really had uh, made a deep impression on, on the people who were there. I was going to ask about exactly that point you know how much of this is you know, class being an issue between sort of the aristocratic lifestyle, your Bullingdon Club types and equivalents, um, compared to sort of the more bourgeois existence that is gradually becoming perhaps more typical of those who are starting to go to Oxford during this period. Obviously, that's a a trend that takes a long time to follow through. But I, I think it would be fair to say that this is one of those points where you start to see that shift happening, right? It is, yes. So, I mean, if we look at the demographic of Oxford today, it's completely unlike that at the beginning of um, the First World War. So I think it was in, in 2020, uh, almost 70% of undergraduates at Oxford were state educated. Um, about 64% of graduates came from overseas. And that wasn't the, the case at all. So in the beginning of the, this is the period I'm writing about, it's about three quarters of the male students have been privately educated in art subjects. And uh, there are hardly any women there anyway, but about half of those um, were the same. And, you know, very small, about 5% from uh, the Commonwealth, 5% from sort of elsewhere overseas. So it's not terrifically diverse, but this begins to change uh, between the wars, um, they sort of mentioned some more scholars coming in from from overseas during the First World War, and this sort of general trend, uh, which kind of picks up, especially during the Second World War, it becomes a little bit more um, diverse, and more women as well coming in uh, with degrees, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, later. But I mean, I think you can say to yourself, okay, so why why today would we sort of sit down and even think about sort of writing about these people when you know so many of them seem to be from a similar privileged background but I think what interested me was the fact that even though many of these students had a very comfortable upbringing and they had a sort of very comfortable student life you know ostensibly arriving at Oxford and beautiful place beautiful buildings first rate teaching nice food everything else but I mean war had an effect of obliterating all of that it kind of made sort of people's backgrounds irrelevant in many ways it's sort of the great leveler in a way that sort of no amount of privilege could really kind of protect these thousands of young men who've been studying at Oxford from being thrown into the deep end you know it 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 changed that that dynamic completely and sort of part of what I was trying to do in my book is to look at how these young people adjusted from that hell to liberation within the city and whether that was possible Can I ask about new ideas coming in as well during this period, particularly sort of thinking about how across um, Europe there are concerns about the rise of communism during this period? And today we tend to associate universities with um, more 
radical um radical i have heavily emphasizes in inverted commas um there uh, but certainly more radical particularly more left-leaning um ideals which isn't necessarily always the case sometimes is sometimes isn't but do you see that at play because universities are meant to be the places where these ideas are discussed right that's part of the point of them um mm. whether it's within philosophy whether it's within historical context or, or other forms so do you see that kind of creating a tension where you see a sort of a, a growth of um, interest within Marxism and, and communist ideals within the university and, and then others perhaps coming from your sort of Bullingdon Club type backgrounds who push back on that? Is that an issue as well during this period? Certainly you see sort of a conflation of different ideals um, coming about. So there's one group in particular, there's a, a classics don who I focus in on, Morris Bowron, who's the one who described uh, the Brontosaurus uh, at Oxford. And he kind of takes a number of students under his wing and he kind of forms this really very sort of anti-establishment group. So they're sort of pushing against what they believe sort of the conservative government of the time represented and trying to be a, a lot more sort of liberated in the way that they went about their own lives and so they're pro sort of mischief they describe themselves as being so very open to homosexual students to Jewish students to sort of whole groups of, of people who might feel marginalized at that time otherwise so you have that kind of arising as a kind of undercurrent um, you have again as you said this is more traditional uh, Burlington type uh, representation as well and then you have sort of a, a mix of other people who I think are drawing a lot on what's happening in Europe and looking at sort of European scholarship and writing. And particularly in the classical world, um, is Germany is, is the place where a lot of, sort of the leading scholarship is, is being produced. And there are sort of relationships being forged between German scholars and English um, scholars at Oxford. And I think, I mean, that's something which in some cases definitely becomes disrupted by the first world war and then the second world war as well um so it's an interesting kind of time actually for, for looking at the sort of relationships that were being forged between between sort of britain and, and europe i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, I want to, if we may, talk about female students who you've alluded to already um, over the course of this. Give us a sense of the struggles that female students are facing, it goes without saying that prior to the First World War, we were in the era of the suffrage struggle, right? 
Um, that only starts to change come 1918. So for these female students, trying to be recognised as equals is in itself a huge challenge. Um, and I'm not just talking about securing the education, but also the recognition that comes off the back of it. You know, this idea that you can secure a, a double first in, in classics or whatever it might be, and then find it really hard to get employment within that field. So just talk us through those challenges and the efforts to try and overcome that. Mm. Well, the women really face an uphill struggle to be accepted and to be sort of embraced on an equal footing with the men. Um, they'd been sort of at Oxford as, as students for, for a few years, but it was only 1910 that they were formally even recognised as members of the university itself. And then throughout this period, they're, they're studying the same uh, subjects as the men, they're doing the same uh, papers, examination papers, the same lectures, the same everything. And they don't get degrees, they get a, sort of a certificate at the end. And it's only 1920, and they finally they win this sort of long campaign in order to, to, to get degrees. So degrees are sort of awarded to some women sort of retrospectively. And that's in place. They think, okay, this, this is a great breakthrough for women in 1920. By 1927, a quota is then imposed on the number of female undergraduates allowed to study at Oxford. So it's about 840 allowed in. So for roughly for sort of every five or six men, there's one woman. So, and that quota, I mean, that it's raised by about 100 and something uh, in the 1940s, but it stays in place until 1957. So, and, and then like a lot of the male colleges not open their doors to women until it's all about the 1970s and 1980s. It seems it's very, very slow progress. And that sense of frustration is really reflected in women's writing at the time. You see them really sort of pushing against it. And I mean, the, the editorials in the Times and things, people saying, oh, you know, if women are really allowed to get degrees, I think they're going to have to work a little bit harder and, you know, be subject to stricter discipline than, you know, is currently in force. It's a very sort of negative attitude towards women having any kind of progress and they're just constantly being knocked back. And I think this is frustrating for some of the more forward-looking men in Oxford as well. I mean, Gilbert Murray, this leading Greek professor, at Oxford, he says that the women are actually much more extraordinary than the average of the men who are studying there. And he's irritated by it, but there's, there's not a lot that sort of one person can do individually. There's a whole culture against them. And I think maybe that stays with them, that carries on when they try and find work later. I think particularly I'm, as a writer myself, I'm always looking at sort of the challenges that women faced who were trying to be writers in that period. And you know, there was a real kind of attitude that, that women who wanted to write or become journalists were aggressive or masculine and it wasn't seen as a kind of acceptable pursuit. So it is actually very frustrating looking back on it as a woman as to how slow change was. Yeah, um, good job that this is a radio show because it's at moments like this when on History Hacks some certain rude hand gestures tend to get made um, <laughs> with reference to the patriarchy. It's just staggering particularly what you say about how you know it's as late as the 70s that some of these colleges actually open their Even doors the 80s and some of them yeah it's just incredible and this idea that they're going to have to work harder because they're women they have to work harder anyway because you're imposing a quota that means that there are fewer places for these women so inevitably what you were saying about that that idea that actually the standard amongst the female students is higher is probably true because <laughs> you take the best right that's that's how these institutions work and so if you've got fewer options 
it's, it's just it's inevitable sorry i'm i'm going off on a, a rant no i, I completely I, agree it makes me really impassioned i was just sitting when writing this book i was just feeling so cross so much of the time but i think you <laughs> you need to feel cross because you have to sort of understand you know what happened and you do you feel just so empathetic i think with with all of those those poor women who are just trying you know there must be so many who were turned down turned away and being amazing women who would have been you know held back it's just incredibly frustrating in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids experience the thrill of transformative encounter We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Off the top of your head, um, sorry, I'm just sort of throwing this one in there. Do you happen to know who the first female lecturer is at Oxford and, and when she's appointed? Yes, so there was the, the first female don. Uh, she was, it was in the 1800s and she was known colloquially as the Rog. As her name was, that's right, I think it was Annie Rogers. I'll just double check that. Um, and she was actually a classicist and she became sort of the, the first kind of um, don in Oxford. And she was from, I think her, her father was a sort of clergyman. And so she, she grew up in Oxford itself and I think it was quite familiar with its ways and maybe that helped sort of aid her progress. Um, but I mean, she was sort of an anomaly. You know, even sort of decades later, there weren't that many and, and women were employed um, by their sort of various colleges rather than the actual faculty, the actual sort of departments. So they weren't on an equal footing uh, with the, the male, the men who were employed uh, to teach either. So it was kind of disparity everywhere. Something else that is bound to um, ignite passions when it comes to sort of understanding this period is that sort of long looming shadow that dominates this period in the form of the rise of fascism uh, and the far right. And history often ends up becoming a, a plaything of political agendas across the entire political spectrum, it has to be said. Um, and it is manipulated and, and twisted in many cases to suit those agendas. Now, Oxford, Cambridge, these, these institutions that are places of learning they're, they're often seen as sort of places that have a responsibility in times such as that to try and push back against that sort of insidious manipulation of the past. So how does that affect the dynamic and what do the lecturers end up sort of having to do in order to try and push back against that misinformation that's being spread? Mm, well, a lot of this is coming out of, of Nazi Germany. I mean, Hitler himself was really interested in classical history. He was looking at uh, the Spartans in particular. He sort of saw them as a, a pillar of strength and something that sort of modern Germans should be aspiring to. And he he wrote something called the Zweitungsbuch in 1928, the secret book, um, which was published uh, only posthumously. And he was praising this sort of the ancient Spartan practice of sort of exposing sick children and sort of a racial preservation, sort of building up a military state and things like that. And it's all very much the history is taken out of context and subverted. And this is immediately of, of concern to scholars who, who actually work in these fields. And 
I mean, they had to sort of try and kick back against a lot of what's what's happening. Because even from school level in Germany, students are pupils are being given sort of passages of Tacitus to look at, sort of describing the germs as being so sort of very sort of robust and, and strong, and it's all being sort of in, you know they're being indoctrinated from a, a very very young age. And it's happening sort of in the sporting world as well, where you find Hitler being sort of attracted to ancient sculptures of you know, these sort of white marble. You know, actually, know they were painted, but you know, these sort of white marble sculptures of the time, and sort of looking at them as sort of figures of strength. And then Plato again being really heavily mined by by Nazis um, for sort of propaganda, looking at sort of the Plato's Republic. Um, so arguments for euthanasia being extracted from this again, kind of out of their original. Um, context and as a result of this as a, a scholar at the time he actually said something like a revulsion grew up towards Plato as a result of the way that he was being contorted in Germany so classicists and philosophers and other scholars had a real battle on their hands to try and reclaim to re-salvage these um, elements of history and the historical past and to present them as they really were and as a scholar who said you know with with, with authors like Plato you need to kind of arm yourself with a, a stout pair of blinkers and um, then you can prove that Plato can be anything you want him to be. These people, the work can be incredibly malleable. So people were pushing back against uh, this sort of real destruction and abuse, really, of, of classical history. And that's part, partly why classics become such an important integral subject in this period. Yeah, I think that's true of, of many um, sections of history where you have a significant body of, of source material. Certainly, I could point to, to 19th century figures who, if they wrote prolifically, you end up being able to take pretty much anything out of a, a context that it's given, and and you can spin it to support any any which way. So I, I'm not surprised in the slightest by by what you say there. Um, I'm really glad you picked up on the the painted statues thing. Um, there is a certain irony in that. Just complete misunderstanding of what these statues actually looked like originally um let's let's move away from fascism now and talk about sort of the internal um pressure if we, rather than sort of the, the broader external changes in society pressure the the internal struggle um within the university for the dons um if, let's start with just kind of explaining for those who aren't familiar with the academic ter terminology what a don is but how do the lecturers, the researchers at Oxford sort of, um, you know, what, what are the, the points of contention between them as, as individuals? And perhaps, you know, sort of give us, give us a few examples of those individuals and, and the, the factions, if you will. Well, with, sort of with Dons, I'm talking sort of colloquially about academics within the universities, about lecturers, tutors, researchers, head of departments. And there's kind of hierarchy of those, as there is still today. You have the really senior ones, so the you know, the big cheese in my book, the Gilbert Murrays, uh, who's the sort of Regis Professor of Greek. And this was a position that really interested me in this book because I couldn't really think of kind of coming across something like this before. This was a, a crown appointment. So it was sort of steered by uh, the prime minister in consultation with the monarch of the time and it was kind of shrouded it wasn't a position you could apply to be you can't sort of fill out a, a form and say I want to be this professor it's something you're kind of headhunted for from the very very top and it was a newsworthy item in these days so oh this is interesting I hadn't really 
you know, consider that this kind of thing actually existed. And it was interesting looking at these sort of cuttings from the period of people saying, well, who's going to be the next Regis professor at Oxford? And I thought, I can't imagine this happening today. And I, I said, partly hooks in my story around this because um, Gilbert Murray's retiring from this position. And the question arose in the press and across Oxford as to who would replace him, who would take his job. And there are various sort of obvious candidates and there are some less sort of obvious, it's kind of the wildcard candidates as well. And there's a huge drama that bubbles up when the job goes to one of them and not the person that everyone thinks it ought to have gone to or the person that everyone's expecting it to go to. And so the, the kind of poor, you know, cuckolded me- member of this kind of circle uh, is the one who ends up making the other one's life hell. Uh, and there's a kind of mini war, as he puts it, sort of between uh, this sort of circle of, of dons, which is quite funny. You get sort of one of them writing quite rude poetry, and sort of you get um, quite unpleasant things as well. Of uh, you know. John's saying you shouldn't you shouldn't go to this guy's lectures and sort of trying to dissuade their students from attending the lectures of, of this and you know if since this guy enters the dining room everyone walks out and it becomes like a real drama in Oxford it's one of those really they, and I think it's quite sort of amusing some of it to, re, to, to sort of read about um, but at the same time it was you know utterly unpleasant for the, the poor person uh, involved and I mean t- tensions Partly in this, I think another thing which interested me was that within these figures, there was a, a bone of contention, the fact that some of them had served in the war and others were conscientious objectors. And that becomes sort of a major difference. And you know, those who'd served felt the sort of a superiority over those who, who hadn't. And that ended up being sort of a big gulf between them. And Oxford just gets carried away. It's kind of split into two rival camps, essentially as a result of this, the fallout of this, this contest for this, this job, which everybody seems to want. Wow. Just wow. I mean, it sounds more like an episode of The Only Way is Essex. And it does um, what you'd expect of an institution like Oxford. Um, it's, I've heard of departmental rivalries um, in my time, but that's on another level entirely. Um, I'm curious about why is it a crown appointment with the best one in the world, the king, the prime minister, these aren't people who I would have thought are particularly au fait with the classics and, you know, be best place to determine who's suitable for that post. Why is that a thing? Well, this is another of these old Oxford traditions which have been in place for years, for centuries, in fact. It's Henry VIII who set up these Regis professors, and there, there's a Regis professors in various subjects of theology, for example. And um, the classics on the Greek one was seen as the absolute sort of number one, one that everyone wanted. And so I think in the early days, people were, it was essentially the monarch who'd often sort of appoint someone who they thought, oh, they're, they're, they're jolly nice, you know, or they're sort of very heroic, and there's someone who gets uh, appointed because he's very brave and undergoing a leg amputation, not necessarily because he was a great classicist. So you have this sort of thing happening and then over time it becomes more and more uh, the prime minister's responsibility and less the monarchs. But still today, um, you know, the, the, it's kind of a role that is painted that gets sent to the chosen candidates and the, the, the queen has to give her okay to the appointment. It's all very curious, isn't it? Um, <laughs> this, this story, it was the basis, because you mentioned this earlier, didn't you? Um, 
Brideshead Revisited, um, Evelyn Ward, this is the basis for all of that. Is that right? And am I right in thinking that some of the characters within the book were people that he actually knew within this, this whole thing that's playing out? So the story of this contest for uh, the job isn't part of Brideshead Revisited, but one of the people involved in it did inspire one of the characters in Brideshead Revisited. There's the connection. Um, so Morris Bauer is one of the people who wants this job. And he was the inspiration for Mr. Sam Grass in the novel, who is this rather, like, it's very difficult to take to Mr. Sam Grass in even War's novel. He's very obsequious and treacly and everything else. He's not a sort of character that you warm to. Um, but you sort of bear in mind that Evelyn War didn't really know um, Bauer until later in his life very well. And when he did, they had a very sort of strained relationship and even Wall was quite mischievous and kind of wanted to present Bauer in a negative light. Um, I mean, the real Bauer was incredibly popular with students in his times, especially as a young man. And you don't get that looking at this portrait. But this is just sort of the sort of thing that, that I guess novelists do. They look at people they know when they're at Oxford. There are other characters in there as well. There's sort of Harold Acton and Brian Howard inspiring Anthony Blanche, sort of a very over-the-top character in Bright Century Visited. And Harold Acton, we know actually he did read T.S. Eliot's poetry through a megaphone through the windows. That happens just as it does in the book. And Sebastian Flight goes around Oxford huddling this teddy bear. Uh, in reality, it was John Betjeman, uh, the poet, who went around carrying a teddy bear around Oxford. So, you know, as a novelist, he was picking up on things he remembered and things he knew as a student. And they all kind of went into this kind of stew pot that formed the novel. Interesting. I always find it fascinating to look at that process of how authors draw on what they know as the basis for, for what they then write about. And it's it's always really interesting, whichever you know genre you're talking about, the extent of overlap between their lived experience and the experiences of their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess as we start to wrap this up, the, the obvious question, and it sounds like a simple one, is, is what's the outcome of it all? But I'm not sure it is a simple one to answer because as we've sort of discussed, some of these are, are much bigger sort of societal transformational problems, right? So sure, you have the advent of World War II come 1939. Does that, in some senses, help to solve some of these problems? Does it move things forward that little bit faster? Does it provide sort of the sea change to bring about the resolution? Or, you know, is this a case that actually all of these rumble on until well into the 50s and the 60s? This is a really interesting and complex question. Um, I mean, one thing that interested me, particularly from a writing point of view, is that this whole sort of argument caused a huge amount of strife, which sort of rippled through Oxford. And I was interested in the way that this could just be sort of blown to dust and rendered completely trivial overnight, which it was initially by the coming of the Second World War. Suddenly that put everything into perspective. And people were realising that they were fussing over you know, tiny little details and these kind of you know, little attacks they're making on each other just didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But that said, you have the war and then after the war, you're still seeing the aftermath of a lot of this and uh, sort of the enmities that people built up towards each other. It seems to be quite lasting in some cases. And I, I wonder if that's partly because people were, people found it almost comforting to go back 
to something that was preoccupying them before the war, before the whole kind of world fell apart again, you know, in the Second World War, it was more comforting to focus on petty rivalries and trivialities than it was to actually reflect on, on the big disaster and the big horror that they'd lived through. So I think maybe that's sort of part of human nature. Interesting. Um, but as you say, in the case of sort of the push to, I'm not even going to say democratise education for women, but just to to be human about the whole thing. And, and I'm going off into a rant. Um, perhaps this is something that we're going to need to cut from the final edit. But that process of change for women goes on for a heck of a long time before it, it's actually resolved, right? It does, yeah, yeah. So um, in the the fifties, yeah, the quotas the quotas finally lifted. But even then, I just I wouldn't say that women were anywhere near on an even footing with the men. And I think you know there are certain quarters. Even when I was a student, where I felt like in certain certain quarters, I felt men felt a lot more prominent and dominant in certain areas than than women were. And trying to sort of get positions, I don't know, in like the junior common room, for example, I felt like some of that felt not in my particular college because I was all female in mine until the end. Um, but in others, so, you know, through friends, it seemed quite a macho atmosphere in some ways. And I think that's probably leveled out and changed a little bit since I was a student. But I think the legacy of this has been quite long lasting. Yeah, certainly um, when it comes to academic appointments, that trying to secure a gender balance is an ongoing concern um, within not all fields, um, but certainly within certain fields, it remains an issue as it does within society as a whole. Daisy, this has been such an interesting discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. So not far from Brideshead, Oxford Between the Wars is out already. We were just discussing that it seems to be doing pretty well, which is great news. Congratulations. Um, folks, you'll be able to get it from the History Hack bookstore or from relevant retailers, just as you know from my uh, usual rants. Please not Amazon, because we would like Daisy to actually see some of the profits and not Jeff Bezos cash in on, I don't know, the latest instalment of rocket fuel that he requires. Um, that <laughs> rant aside, please do, one way or another, go and buy this book. It's a really interesting read. Daisy, your other works um, on Roman history, again, obviously widely available online, well, Roman and Greek history, I should say. Um, but you also have a website. Where can people find out more about your work and kind of stay in touch with developments about you? Yes, uh, my website is www.daisydunn.co.uk and I tweet at Daisy F. Dunn. And it's done with a double N, folks. Um, full details in the description to this episode. Daisy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great fun. My pleasure. Thank you.